Um, so this is a new class that we're starting uh, this week. Uh, it's going to run either six or seven weeks. Um, I determined this week that the flights that we chose, uh, I am going to be here on December 22nd, so that's a seventh week. Um, and so maybe we'll have you know a week of, of, of wrap up uh, on this class right before Christmas, but this is going to go through the Advent season. Um, the title of the class, it's actually not up there, all of it, um, is uh, Flood and Cup, Sword and Stone, Flame and Tree, Images of Salvation Through Judgment uh, in, in Scripture. Um, this is the class, um, it's biblical theology. We're going to spend a lot of time uh, in the Bible. In fact, most of what we're going to do today is just read passages and see what we see. So if you don't have a Bible, um, come, and, come and grab one or you know, get a Bible handy because we're going to be flipping around a lot. Um, what, this, what this class is about, um, when I say images of salvation through judgment in Scripture, so first of all, uh, images, this is, this is kind of a class in um, what you might call theological aesthetics. Um, the Bible has a lot of doctrine in it. Uh, the Bible tells a lot of stories, or it tells one big story. Um, but the Bible uses a lot of images, a lot of pictures, a lot of symbols. Um, and the point of this class is for us to take a look at the images and the symbols uh, that it uses uh, to talk about salvation through judgment. So this is kind of a, this is a reach for me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not an artist. Uh, you know, it, 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 it would take a lot of chutzpah for me to stand up here and say, you know, I have any expertise in aesthetics. Um, others of you will probably pick up on things that I don't, and so I look forward to discussion where you guys see things. Um, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about uh, this, this particular topic and this issue. Um, when I say salvation through judgment, um, there's two ways to understand that. And to some degree, we'll talk about both of them here. One is to say that when God saves, he often saves by judging. Uh, just this morning, um, the lectionary reading from the Psalms was Psalm 96, um, which praises a God who comes, it says it twice, he comes, he comes in judgment. He comes to judge the earth. And Miroslav Volf has pointed out that, you know, for those of us who live pretty comfortable suburban or even comfortable urban lives, um, it can be hard to resonate with uh, praise for a God who comes to judge. Um, but if you live in a world that's broken, uh, if you know that there's a world with a lot of injustice in it, a lot of evil um, that seems to go in unanswered, um, then you long for justice. You long for a righteous judge uh, to come. Um, and it's often the case that when God comes to save his people in the Bible, he does it by judging. And it's even the case um, that very often um, when he judges, it is itself an act of mercy. So, for example, uh, the Tower of Babel story, uh, God looks and he sees and he says, you know, this, this, this people, nothing's going to be impossible for them. They can do anything that they put their mind to. Um, and he knows that the direction they're going is that they're going to put their minds to getting further and further away from him, descending further into evil. And so he comes and he judges. He puts a stop to what they're doing. He confuses their language. Uh, it is an act of judgment, but at the same time, it's an act of mercy. Um, when he gives the rationale for why he's judging Sodom and Gomorrah, 
uh, it's because he's heard the cries of the afflicted who are being oppressed in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's an act of judgment, but it's also an act of mercy. So that's one sense of salvation through judgment. Um, but there's another one, and it's probably the more primary one that we'll talk about. Um, and that is um, that God brings his people through judgment. And that's where these images are really going to come into play. Um, because images of uh, water, uh, images of fire, images of a blade, of a stone, uh, images of a cup, images of a tree, these are all images of judgment in Scripture. And what we're going to see, we go week through week, what each of these has in common, they're all images of judgment. Um, they're all things that can kill you or things that can be life-giving. Right? We're going to talk about water today. Uh, water can kill you. You can drown. Uh, water can also cleanse you. Um, water can slake your thirst. We're actually going to defer that until next week when we, when we talk about the cup. Um, and what we're going to see each week is that what changes each of these things from death to life um, is Jesus. We're going to see how Jesus transforms each of these things from something that would kill you uh, to something that gives life. So we're starting this week with flood, uh, with, with water. A um, couple more just introductory comments for the, the course as a, as a whole. Um, so Exodus 3, uh, 1 through 6. Let me go ahead and read this. I'm going to start just calling on people to read pretty soon because normally I say, who wants to read passage and it adds 20 seconds of silence? Um, and if I do that 30 times in a class, then it's going to take forever. Here's Genesis 1, uh, sorry, Genesis, no, Exodus. Exodus 3, 1 to 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So, um, obviously we're going to come back to this one when we talk about fire uh, in week five of, of, of the class. But there's a general thing that's going on here. Um, and it's, it's well expressed. Catherine Sonderegger is a, a theologian, uh, teaches at UVA, um, and has, has just published, she's just about to come out with the second volume of her, of her systematic theology. But in the first volume, she, she talks about God's omnipresence, you know, the fact that God is everywhere, that he fills creation. Um, and she points to this passage, and she says, the wonder that draws Moses aside and opens his ear is not the seeming impossibility of a fire that's not fiery, 
nor a bush that is not God being yet at once divine. The wonder is that the Lord God draws near and the creature does not die away. So what she's saying is, here we have what theologians refer to as a theophany, which is an appearance of God, right? God shows up. Um, and on the one hand, um, the miracle, it's not that this fire isn't really fire, right? It doesn't just appear to be fire. It really is, it really is fire. It should burn this bush up. Nor is it the case that this is a magical bush or that the bush is actually God in just the appearance of a bush. Now, this is, this is a bush, right? And the miracle um, is that God draws near without having to push the creature aside, without having to make the creature anything less than what it actually is, um, and without destroying it, without consuming it. Um, this is central to Christian theology, right? That God can do this. Because, I mean, what, what is actually at the center of Christian theology? The worship of God? Uh, that's a good answer. Christ became man? Yeah, yeah. I, so I was going for the standard Sunday school answer, right? This is a Sunday school class, and so usually the answer is Jesus, right? Um, I like Kevin's answer, too. Um, Jesus is at the center of Christian theology, right? And, and we're not going to be able to understand, understand Jesus at all if we don't understand um, that God uh, can draw near, um, that God can be united uh, to creature um, without pushing the creature aside, right? Because we confess this incarnate God, fully human and fully, fully man, uh, without confusion and separation. Um, the thing is that throughout Scripture, God's presence is not something to be taken lightly. It's not something you just walk into. Um, it often appears as fire or as a flood or, you know, in, in, in some way that really ought to destroy the creature. Here's another, here's another example. Um, Rick. Could you read Isaiah 6, 1 to 7? Oh, read verse 7. With it he touched my mouth, and 
Okay, so I had a friend who used to refer to this as the barbecued lips model of atonement. Um, that, that coal from the altar, right, uh, burning coal, I feel like some translations might say white hot, but it's clearly hot. Um, that thing should do some serious damage to Isaiah's face, right? Um, I mean, even, even if it's just a normal, like, coal on fire. Um, but it doesn't. Instead, uh, this angel says, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, uh, and your sin atoned for. Um, again, you know, we have an image here uh, of something that should destroy, that somehow instead cleanses uh, and purifies. Um, we're going to be asking, how is that, how is that possible? Um, last, oh, actually, two more. Uh, just two more introductory um, uh, examples. Hebrews 12, uh, 18 to 24. Um, <coughs> compares Mount Zion to Mount Sinai. The writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Right, so, so it evokes the terror that the people felt uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, you know, when they saw the presence of the Lord. Um, skipping down. But then he doesn't say, no, what you've come to is something that's much nicer, much more gentle. Instead, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering." and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, this, if anything, is more frightening. Um, this is, you have come into heaven itself. Um, again, we're going to be asking, so how? How is this possible? How is it that creatures um, such as we can come into God's uh, presence, um, and the answer throughout, um, you know, this is this is this is the title of the course, um, is that God brings us through. Um, Isaiah forty three one to two, um, I won't read it, but it talks about um, God bringing His people through the flood, uh, through the flame, uh, the flames will not consume you. The flood will not overwhelm you uh, for your mind. Um, so this is, this is what we're after um, in, this, in this class. That, yeah, I, I, for sake of time, I'm, I had a side comment, but I'll skip it. Um, so much for kind of introduction. Um, any questions or comments so far? We're not going to actually turn to looking at water in particular, yes. Oh. They went across the line, lived twice, 
all the things going around, the sideways, hearing the crash, whatever. And right in the middle of it, my sister said, Lord, save me. Hmm. And right then? Close. So, <laughs> and, then, and then we, you know, I got over to the side. We looked at each other. And it was like, we still did. Yeah. You know, we were just kind of amazed that we could almost, you know, the Subaru was helpful and sure enough. Yeah. We got through, but it was that thing. And afterwards, Bernie said, it's like we were surrounded by a wall of fire. Mm. Almost a protection. Mm-hmm. And that God saved us. And as you were talking about that, I just was feeling uh, intuitively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a way to identify with, uh, I mean, Moses, Isaiah, like several of these figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Still there. Yeah, what? what? Amos 2.5, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, thank you. Um, all right. Uh, this is kind of funny. This is a plate that William Blake made. Um, the title is Four Children. The Gates of Paradise, plate 12, the title is Help, Help. I'm not even sure what the story was for that, but I just like the plate. Um, so we're going to talk about flood today. Like I said, today we're primarily talking about how is it that in Jesus, the flood that would drown uh, instead becomes something that cleanses, that washes. Um, we're kind of heading towards an understanding of baptism here. Uh, to some extent, and, and I did pair, I've paired flood and cup as the first two weeks to get two sacraments uh, together. But we're actually going to hold off, there's, there's imagery of water being something that, you know, quenches your thirst as well, and just for the sake of time, we're going to talk about that next week in the context of, of cup. Um, okay, so to begin, um, we want to start, like we almost always do in Genesis 1, um, but could somebody first read Deuteronomy 32, uh, 10 to 12? Some context setting for Genesis 1. They found him in a desert land, and the howling waste of the wilderness encircled him and cared for him, kept him as an apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God helped him. Thank you. So there's a there's a phrase in there. Um, in verse eleven. Um, the translation I have says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. What was the word in yours that you read? Was it? Yeah, the same. Yeah. So, hovers, yeah. So this word flutter, this word hover, that's in Deuteronomy 32, where in this, in this case, this is talking about, you know, God caring for Israel, right? Caring for them as he brings them out of Egypt through the wilderness, uh, flutters over its young, hovers. Um, there's one other place in the Bible where that word appears. Everybody know where that where that is in the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's the word used of the Spirit uh, in Genesis one two. The Spirit of God was hovering 
uh, over the face of the waters. Um, the reason I bring this up um, is because one of the first things that we want to think about is how the story of, of creation, Genesis, and the story of deliverance, of liberation in Exodus are connected. Um, so, specifically with, with, with reference to water, um, in Genesis 1, 6 to 10, it says, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So you hear that what's happened here is that God has separated, right? We start off with everything formless and void, and there's kind of this picture of chaos. Everything is jumbled up, right? Uninhabited, uninhabitable. Uh, and God starts to separate. So here he separates waters above from waters below. Um, going on, in verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So it's another separation, right? So now it's like before it was vertical, and now it's horizontal. God is pushing back the waters, holding them back in one place so that dry land appears. And there's a place where life uh, can emerge, where it can thrive. Um, this is God taking what was, you know, again, formless and void and beginning to form it. Um, now, a couple, couple comments to make on that. Um, so one is, you may have heard this before, because um, we want to think about how would the original hearers of this story have, have heard what was going on? What would they have been thinking about? Um, does anybody know how water figures, if you know anything about like sort of other ancient Near Eastern creation stories? Anybody know how water figures into those? Yeah, it represents chaos and destruction. Yeah, and that holds true, I mean, in, in the Bible as well. Water is often a picture of, of chaos. Um, and of, and of destruction. The sea, the sea in particular, yeah. What about, um, what about as per personified, like in the form of like a god of some kind? We're going to come to that next week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of thing. So um, there's, several, there's several different ancient Near Eastern stories where the sea uh, is not just the sea, but it's a sea monster, uh, and it's actually a god, and it's a god of chaos. And in these stories, you have rival gods. You have, like, a whole pantheon of gods, right? So the Enuma Elish of Babylon is, is one of these. Marduk is the chief god, and the way he becomes the chief god uh, in Babylon is that he does battle with this sea monster, named Tiamat. Um, and the battle actually describes him, you know, taking hold of this sea monster and separating her body and putting part of her body up to become the sky and putting part of it down below um, uh, to become uh, the waters. Um, and, and the way that humanity is created is that her blood waters the earth and where it waters the earth, humans spring up, right? So in that story, you have, you have God against God. You have rival gods, right? 
um, where the outcome is somewhat in doubt because who knows which of them is the stronger. Um, they're doing battle, right? So creation begins in this conflict. Humanity is a total byproduct, right? Just kind of an accidental like, oops, blood waters the earth and, and there you have humans. Um, and the gods treat them as such. They say, oh great, we have someone to do our dirty work for us. Um, you see how the Genesis story subverts that whole narrative, right? There's no conflict. Um, there's only one God. If water represents chaos, it's still a chaos that's his creature. It's something he made. It's totally under his control. When he wants to put separation between sky and water, he just speaks it. Dry land just speaks it into existence, right? So no conflict at all. Um, so it's, it's, it's subverting that, that story. Um, the other thing to know, though, if you're thinking about, like, what would the original hearers have been thinking, um, if Moses is originally telling this story uh, to people who have come out of Egypt, um, and they hear a creation story that involves water being separated from water uh, and dry land appearing, what do you suppose they're thinking about? Like when would they have seen something that looked kind of like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let, let's, somebody actually read this. Exodus 14, 19 to 31. I said I would just call on people. Um, Catherine, do you have it? Okay. Um, all right, your your turn here. I've been I've been talking too much. What did you see? What connections did you see in that passage um, to the Genesis one 
the creation story, specifically the, the parts about water that we, that we read, or any part of the creation story, I guess. God is, yes, yes. So clearly, yes, God is still ruling over the waters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And again, we've got, you know, this is, this is where we talk about salvation through judgment. They're literally passing through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the water's not, yeah, it's not that God has made the water less dangerous. It's still water. Yeah. Um, what were you going to say? Oh, yep. A strong east wind. That's right. That's right. That's right. There's this. There's this. Yeah, Hebrew is wonderful for what we're doing here, which is talking about connections between different images, because Hebrew's got a much smaller vocabulary, which means that words have to do double and triple duty. And so sometimes it's just fun to see where the same word, you know, wind and spirit is a great example. Uh, we'll see a few, other, a few other places where things get connected, you know, by, by the word. Yeah. I think that's a good connection, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know, we often, we often make the point uh, that what they're being set, they're being set free from slavery, uh, but they're very explicitly, explicitly being set free for the worship of the true and living God. Like it's right there in what Moses says, let my people go, that they may go worship me. Um, slavery in Egypt is tied to idolatry in Egypt. Freedom is tied to the worship of, of the true God. And yes, there is that split that happens at this, at this point. Yeah. I, I threw one thing in there that actually is not about water, but it's just interesting. The first couple verses we read, uh, 19 and 20, um, there's a separation between light and darkness also. Um, what your your verse twenty was? Read that again. Yeah, it says here also night the fog brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. Yeah. Right, right. So it's a different day of creation, but again, it's a God who separates, and and is using it for salvific purposes here. Yeah. Somebody get their hand up. So all of this is to say, if you, if you were hearing the story for the first time, you know, the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, these would be pretty formative experiences for you. It's a pretty dramatic thing, right? Um, 
And so it would certainly color the way you heard that creation story, right? And it would say a few things to you that we kind of take for granted but are not at all trivial, um, you know, which is that the creator is the redeemer, right? The God who brought you out of Egypt is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Um, this is not a trivial thing for them. I mean, they're used to a world in which you kind of have lots of gods. They're local gods. When you go, you know, if you're in Egypt, one set of gods is in charge. When you leave Egypt, you better figure out what other set of gods is in charge and what they want, right? Because they're in charge now. God is saying, no, there's one God, uh, ruler over heaven and earth, maker of heaven and earth, and he is the one who brought you out of Egypt, right? It's the same God. Um, that's why that first point that you made is so, is so important. The God who rules the seas at the Red Sea is the God who ruled the seas in creation. Um, yeah. Any other? Yeah, Michael. Yeah, and we're going to talk next week about Jesus as, just for the sake of time, kind of figured that a couple of these images, like flood as one of them, are going to take more than just one week. So I'm, I'm pushing all of the living water stuff to next week when we talk about the cup. But that's another, you know, I am, uh, he doesn't say I am living water, right? That's not one of the I am. It's actually, it's, I can give living water. It's, yeah, it's a little different, but it's the same. And it's, again, at a feast where there's like, water flowing everywhere, and they're remembering um, this event again. Yeah, so we'll talk about that next week. Um, this event gets repeated a couple times, right? This, this parting of the waters. Um, so Joshua 3, uh, 7 to 17 um, is where uh, Israel enters the land, right? And there's this miraculous, you know, the priest's uh, stand in the Jordan River with the ark, uh, and the waters are held back, separated, piled up so that dry land appears and Israel walks in. Um, happens again in 2 Kings 2 um, with Elijah and Elisha. Remember, anyone remember this story? So this is right at the end of Elijah's life uh, when Elisha is about to take on the mantle, literally, uh, from Elijah. Um, it's actually kind of interesting to look at, at um, first and second kings, there's kind of this conquest in reverse story going on, right? So at the conquest, like they, they come to the Jordan River, um, it is miraculously parted. They walk through on dry land. First thing they do, uh, first city they come to is Jericho, right? And there's that dramatic story, the walls come tumbling down. Um, and it says, um, God says, don't ever rebuild Jericho. I meant to look this up, so I'm doing this from memory here. You know, but he says, don't ever rebuild Jericho when there's a curse applied to it. You know, that if you rebuild Jericho, you'll do so at the cost of your firstborn son. Well, uh, in 1 Kings, um, as you probably know, so things in 1 Kings are not going well, right? A uh, bunch of bad kings leading the people into idolatry, kingdom divided. Um, and right before 
the story with Ahab and Elijah, where things kind of hit their low point uh, as, far as, as, as far as idolatry is concerned. Um, somebody rebuilds Jericho. And sure enough, it says he does so at the cost of his firstborn son. So this, this curse comes true. Is it his youngest? Oh, and his youngest. Oh. Okay, okay, okay. You guys know the story. Good. Um, right, but the point is, everything that happened as they came into the land is starting to be undone, right? And the last thing is that Elijah and Elisha crossed the Jordan as they head out of the land, right? And then Elijah is taken from Elisha, right? That miraculous, the chariots of fire. We're not talking about fire this week, but there's fire again. Um, uh, Elijah is taken, and then Elisha is left alone. Um, he pick up, picks up the mantle. He's been promised a double portion of God's spirit, right? And so now it's on him. And he comes back to the Jordan. Again, miraculous crossing. This happened on the way out, too. Um, they hit the water with Elijah, Elijah's mantle, and it parted so they could walk across on dry land. Um, but it's kind of like Elisha going back into the land is acting as a second Joshua. Um, even the name works. Uh, Elisha is a contraction of Elishua. So it's Elishua, that's God saves. Joshua, Yahweh saves. It's kind of the same name. Um, it's kind of a, a second entry into the land. Um, and there's a similar you know, trajectory of like bad, 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 bad until a shepherd king. Um, in, in both of these stories. The first one being David, the second we have to wait uh, for Jesus. Um, but, again, God bringing his people through um, constantly uh, to, uh, to salvation. Um, okay, one last... One last place where this story, this is a longer passage. Um, so who wants to read a longer passage? Mark 4.35 to 5.20. You'll wonder why I'm, I'm tacking on the part in chapter 5, but, but maybe you'll pick it up. You got it?
we had often been bound with shackles and chains, with threads of chains hard and broken by our feet. No one had the strength to keep free. Night and day, among the fumes and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with his head. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of him, if you want to be cured. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to set him out of town. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, When you send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Which gave him strength. And young pig spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and went down. Go ahead and stop there. Thanks. Yeah, just, just for the sake of time. That, that gets enough of, of what we're looking for. Um, okay, so the first part of that, Jesus calms the storm, right? So, again, I mean, here we just have, yet again, God ruling over the waves, ruling over the sea, right? I've uh, always found tremendous comfort, that line in Be Still My Soul, um, uh, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Um, I remember a time uh, while Leanne and I were still dating and we were long distance and it was just hard. You know, it was just tumultuous, felt stormy. Um, and I remember us, you know, sending that line back and forth. I think it was by email. Yeah, we had email. Uh, <laughs> dating a long time ago. Um, but what, what about that second part? Why, why, would, why would we, why would that, why would the healing of a demon-possessed man and, and in particular, look at some of the details of what happened. Why would that come immediately after Jesus calming the storm, and what would that tell us? And Matthew has the same, Matthew preserves the ordering of those two episodes. Yeah. Right, right. So it's establishing his authority, establishing who he is. Yeah. Yeah, Nathan? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a conquest. Yes. Um, so what's the connection? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which establishes uh, his political uh, command that Jesus is judge. And the yep. salvation of, of these people comes through judgment and faith. Yep, yep, yep. I love some of these places where the different images come together, like a lake of fire. We'll see several of those over the next several weeks. Yeah, so it again is a, this, this would be salvation through judgment of that first kind that we talked about Jesus judging evil. Leading to salvation. Yeah. Any other? Both the events end up in a calm. Both um, end up in a calm. Uh, yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Um, yes. 
Yeah, that is true. Yeah, AJ. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, what? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good. Um, I mean, so one of the one of the connections that we're that we're trying to see here is how this is this is the Exodus again, right? This is God ruling over the waters, uh, and then immediately the next thing that happens is a conquest, is a military victory. I mean, you even have like the demon's name is Legion, which is a military term. Um, I like. I like G's point in that, you know, it, it takes it beyond simply the defeat of physical enemies, you know, and reminds us that, you know, we're in a spiritual battle, right? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Um, and Jesus is sovereign over those enemies as well. Um, but you're supposed, you know, when you read Mark 4 and 5 or wherever it is in Matthew, I forget, um, you know, and you have Jesus ruling over the waters and then immediately achieving this victory, um, you know, this is, this is supposed to be a pretty clear picture of who is this, right? Again, this is the same God uh, who parts the Red Sea uh, in order to achieve victory for his people, in order to save them from, from military enemies. Um, that's, what, that's what Jesus is doing here. Um, in both events, and with fear on the behind, a part of their onward, whether disciples or the yeah. people of the land want yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, the disciples and those people you can go back to Exodus and see some of the same, some of the same thing. That's yeah. That's that's actually something that's worth marking at, at several points. Is that when when humans come in contact? So a main theme of this whole of this whole class is how God preserves His people so that we can be in His presence without in any way toning down his holiness, right? That was the point of that, that Hebrews 12 passage. Um, God doesn't stop being God. God doesn't stop being holy. God doesn't stop being one in whose presence there should be fear. Um, and we'll see several times. Um, actually, it should have been this week, and I, just for the sake of time, didn't include it. Um, another time when Jesus rules over the waters is when he walks on the waters, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and you remember Peter's reaction um, when he realizes who he's standing uh, in front of, you know, that Jesus has that kind of control, that kind of uh, power uh, over the waters. Um, he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He's in, he's, there's a measure of fear there. Um, yeah, we'll mark that several times. Um, Okay, Revelation 21, we can, we can pass over very quickly. It's just that the, the, the picture of the end um, part of it is that there is no more sea. 
Um, yeah, we've, we've talked about that before. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. That, um, you know, whereas the original created order had, you know, order in the midst of chaos, the new heavens and the new earth are all order. Um, so, so far we've mostly been talking, only about five minutes here, um, we've mostly been talking about water as uh, an image of, of chaos and of destruction and something that uh, we need to be protected from, need to be brought through, and how God miraculously brings salvation to his people by, you know, making a way. Um, this is actually where Caroline Cobb's He Has Made a Way song comes from. It's about Exodus 14 and 15. Um, there is, of course, also that element of water where it's not just... Um, it's not just something which is chaotic uh, and dangerous, but is actually used by God uh, in, in judgment. Um, the flood narrative would, of course, be the primary you know, archetypal uh, example um, of that. Um, I'm going to assume that people kind of generally know, you know. One thing you might not have noticed that I'll point out, um, remember, the, remember the little children's song about the flood? It's, 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 what is it, the rain came down and, and the floods came up. So it's actually where before God separated, um, it's collapsing, right? So this is, this is a picture of the undoing of creation. There's actually an explicit uh, reference to judgment that looks like an undoing of creation uh, in Jeremiah. Um, here's what Jeremiah says in, in chapter 4. Uh, this is at verse 23. He says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will, yet I will not make a full end. Um, you don't quite have explicit water there, although when you have the mountains moving to and fro, you know, it, it, you can imagine that's kind of what it would look like to look out of the ark and see the waves. Um, it's this picture of God's judgment coming that's expressed, you know, very much in terms of, of decreation, of an undoing of, of creation. Um, there is that wonderful mark of hope at the end, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Um, with the time that we have left, um, let's see, I've got to skip that, I've got to skip. Um, Psalm 69, take a look at it uh, at some point, and then compare it to John 19, <clears throat> Psalm 69 uh, has all this imagery about sinking in the mire, sinking in the flood, sinking in the water, but then there's also all this imagery that shows up on the cross. Um, so just take a look at that at some point on your own. Um, yeah, so I just want to talk about a couple places where we see God bringing his people through the flood, like the flood of the way that, you know, Genesis 6, six to 9. Um, one of them is Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Uh, we won't read it. Um, 
Exodus 2 is the story of uh, Moses being born, right? You remember what did uh, Moses' mother, she, she, she took him and she put him in a what? In a basket, right? Um, here's another place where the small vocabulary of Hebrew is really wonderful. The word for basket shows up one other place in the Old Testament. Anyone want to guess? Ark. Yeah, it's the ark. She put him in an ark. Um, actually, the ark of the covenant is a different word. I don't know why. Or I don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, the ark that Noah built, builds and the basket that Moses is in, that's, that's the same word. Um, so here's, it's like, here's Israel, you know, floating down. Uh, and God is, God is bringing his people through this destruction um, that Pharaoh brought. The other place, though, um, that I want us to see, because it takes us right to baptism, and we're not going to have time to talk about it, so we'll have to pick up here next week. Um, somebody just read, uh, so Second Peter talks about the flood in, in chapter 3, but somebody read First Peter 3, 18 to 22. We'll have to finish with this. So, what do you think Peter means there? Baptism now corresponds to the ark. What do you hear him saying there? By the way, if you have to pick up kids, you can, you can get up. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Um, you know, we've been reading this book uh, at the, over at the field uh, called Union with Christ, all about our union with Christ. Um, you know, getting at the language of our being in Christ. And here's a place where to be in Christ, you know, the way Peter's talking about it here, is being pictured like being in the ark, right? And the judgment of God... Um, is going to fall on all those who aren't uh, in the ark. Um, but to be in Christ is to be brought through, uh, is to be brought through uh, in him, as though he himself uh, were our ark. And it's interesting that he says, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism at some place, um, you know, uh, says, um, you know, our union with Christ is such that it is as though we ourselves had paid the penalty for our sins. It is as though we ourselves had actually done what we cannot do 
uh, and atoned for our own sins. To be in Christ is to be brought through that judgment in such a way um, that it has no power over you, that you have a good conscience to appeal to. Um, yeah, we're running out of time. Um, so I'm going to have to stop there. Um, anyway, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to, to pick, up, pick up with this uh, next week. Um, I can hang out here uh, for another 10 minutes or so and, and talk, you know, answer questions, uh, whatever. But um, let me pray for us, uh, and, uh, and then we'll pick up next week. Father in heaven, um, well, there's always too much here. There's not only too much for an hour. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's too much for a lifetime uh, for us to uh, really plumb the depths. Um, of the glories of your salvation. Uh, it's good that you call us into uh, your church where we can uh, slowly, uh, day by day, week by week, uh, on our own together, um, just come to your word um, and, and hear uh, what you have done for us. Uh, hear the promises that you've made. Uh, see your faithfulness to those promises. Um, marvel at the degree um, to which you have, um, yeah, done done what you said you were going to do in ways uh, that we could never have imagined, could never have expected, uh, far more than we could ask or imagine. Uh, we thank you for this. Uh, we pray uh, now as we go to worship you that you would keep working on our hearts uh, and make us more like your son. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks. See you next week.